You are listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us in person on Saturdays at 4.30 p.m. or virtually through Zoom or Facebook on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us at www.cumcballston.org. There you can learn more about our congregation and how we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21 in the Common English Bible. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. One died for the sake of all, therefore all died. He died for the sake of all so that those who are alive should live not for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So then, from this point on, we won't recognize people by human standards. Even though we used to know Christ by human standards, that isn't how we know him now. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. All of these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you as Christ's representatives, be reconciled to God. God caused the one who didn't know sin to be sin for our sake, so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. The word of God for the people of God. For this morning. In the movie Field of Dreams, the main character, Ray, is an Iowa farmer who hears a mysterious voice in the wind blowing through the cornfield. If you build it, he will come. The voice encourages him to build a baseball field right there in the middle of his cornfield. If you build it, he will come. The voice is increasingly insistent. If you build it, he will come. With his wife's support, but amidst the taunts from all of the town folk and even his own siblings, Ray plows under some of his corn crop and he builds a baseball diamond, complete with lights for night games and bleachers for spectators. And then the ghost of baseball stars long dead begin to emerge from the seven-foot-high cornfield rows that remain. They have come to play ball. At first, Ray understands that the he he'd heard from the wind would be disgraced shoeless Joe Jackson, the baseball great who was banned for life for allegedly throwing the 1919 World Series. But then there's a new message that he hears from the wind. Ease his pain. 
And Ray realizes that his baseball field is much more than just a field. It is a place to give second chances to people who sacrificed too much in their own lives. There is another person who appears out of that cornfield. It's Ray's own father. It is the he, the voice, had promised Ray's dad had been a minor league baseball player who wasn't present in Ray's life, causing bitterness in Ray. And now they have time to play a simple game of catch on Ray's field of dreams. They have a chance to talk, to listen, to see life from the viewpoint of the other, an opportunity to reconcile. They experience forgiveness and restore their relationship. At one point, Ray asks his ghost father, is there a heaven? And his father answers, oh yeah, it's the place where dreams come true. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul had a similar dream for reconciliation and restored relationships. But it wasn't just for some future heaven. Instead, it was just as Sharon read for us today, here and now in this life. Paul wrote this letter a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he rested upon the reconciling act that happened by the incarnation of God in the form of Jesus. And then he said reconciliation continues through God's people who remain on this earth. We are given a ministry of reconciliation. Paul was writing to this community of Jesus' followers in Corinth, and there was a lot of conflict. Paul addressed the different quarrels they were having about food practices, about idols, about sexual promiscuity, about worship rituals. But he was dealing with a lot of conflict. Because some members claimed spiritual superiority over others. And there were some members who were actively opposed to Paul and what he taught about Jesus. So into this chaos and conflict, Paul writes to them and he challenges them to be reconciled to each other, with Paul, and with Christ Paul emphasizes that if anyone is in Christ, that person becomes a new creation. And he says this based on his own experience of conversion. When he had been Saul, who was breathing murderous threats against people who followed Jesus, he experienced an utter conversion, a turning from that life, turning toward the life of the Apostle Paul, who proclaimed the way of Jesus. And here he is writing to the church at Corinth, telling them that they too can be a new creation. Now, biblical scholars believe that these verses that we have heard today came from some of the very early liturgy of the community of Jesus' followers. So Paul was not just writing ideas and theology, he was actually using their words of worship. Our current worship series is called Liturgy of the Ordinary. It is inviting us to look at those everyday actions and the words that we say and notice how they help shape and mold our hearts and our spirits. So far, we've looked at remembering our baptism when we encounter water in our showers. We've looked at how brushing our teeth or making our bed can inspire our prayer life. 
But today's liturgy from our ordinary life is something that is much more emotionally vulnerable than any of those actions. Our author, Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, titled her chapter, Fighting with My Husband, Passing the Peace and the Everyday Work of Shalom. In this chapter, she admits, I'm a pacifist who yells at her husband. It might not be part of the liturgy of our everyday life that we want to admit, but here, Reverend Warren is admitting that yelling at her husband is part of the liturgy of her life. She wrote, quote, The truth is, I get along with most people pretty well. When I do have conflict, it is usually with those I love the most. The struggle to love thy neighbor is most often tested in my home with my husband and my kids, especially when I'm tired, fearful, discouraged, off my game, or I just want to be left alone. How often does it feel easier to love our neighbors when we have a fence between us or when we can shut the door when we're just not feeling so lovable and loving? But when we share our living space with people, it can create a more challenging time and place to live out that commandment to love our neighbors. For some folks, over the last couple of years, this time of COVID quarantine caused even more stress because people who would normally leave the house for work and for school were all together in one place all the time. Writer Anne Lamont said that we learn the practice of reconciliation by starting with those closest to us. Quote, Earth is forgiveness school. You might as well start at the dinner table. That way you can do this work in comfortable pants. Learning to forgive others, learning to ask for forgiveness, and learning to receive it. This practicing of reconciliation is something that we do in worship every week. We do this when we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, asking God to forgive us as we forgive others. We also do this when we pass the peace with one another. Although sometimes in our liturgy, we miss the theological implications of sharing the peace. It can be a moment to catch up with a friend, maybe to greet a newcomer to worship. It is about connecting with one another, but it is also a reminder to seek forgiveness not only from God, but from the humans we may have hurt. Our author turns her attention to a teaching of Jesus according to the Gospel of Matthew in the fifth chapter. Quote, Early Christians took seriously Jesus' teaching that if someone is approaching the author and remembers that their brother has something against them, they must leave and go make peace with the offended brother before offering a gift to God. So before the meal of peace, we speak peace to those nearest us. More than once, my husband Jonathan and I have had to get up in the middle of, an, of passing the peace and go outside to talk through an argument that we had on the way to church, end quote. There's at least one time that came to my memory, and if you ask Greg, there may be more times, but I know I have had to seek him out at least once during the passing of peace and worship to say, I'm sorry. 
In the Anglican tradition, this moment happens right before communion. It happens every week because they share the Eucharist every week. And Reverend Warren said, the passing of the peace is placed where it is in the liturgy for theological reasons. Before we come to the Eucharist, we actively extend peace to members of the body of Christ right around us. It's a liturgical reenactment of the reality that we cannot approach the table of the Prince of Peace if we are not at peace with our neighbor. Now, most of the Methodist churches where I have worshipped have not had communion every week. And we also don't usually include the peace right before communion. But this is our heritage, because John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was an Anglican priest. And most of the time, I love having the peace right at the beginning, especially pre-COVID when we could go and shake hands or hug or greet people and we could have an extended time of connection. Because for me, I feel more connected to God when I feel connected to the people that I am worshiping with. But I will admit there was one time I regretted not emphasizing the theological implications of passing the peace of being reconciled with our siblings in Christ as we are reconciled to Christ. See, I once got a letter from a person withdrawing their membership from the church that I was serving because I had counseled them to reconcile with another member of the church who had offended them. Their withdrawal letter specifically said that my pointing towards our ministry of reconciliation caused them to no longer want to be a member of the church. Now, let me be clear, this is not an instance of violence or abuse. Restoring relationships in those instances can be possible, but those new relationships have very different boundaries than the ones that inflicted harm. This particular instance was when another member had made a comment that caused personal offense. And my counseling about the ministry of reconciliation stepped on some toes, And those toes decided to walk away. So I regret not emphasizing the power of reconciliation, not just with Christ, but also with one another. Our scripture today tells us that we have been entrusted with this vital ministry of reconciliation. The missiologist David Bosch said, quote, serving, healing, and reconciling a divided, wounded humanity is God's mission. And we as the church are part of that mission. The good news of God's reconciling and liberating love for the world is incarnated, is made real, is given flesh in the life, worship, and witness of congregations of Jesus' followers. This reconciling and liberating love moves us to a ministry of justice and peace. Reconciliation begins with repentance and conversion, and then seeking transformation. Reconciliation with God and with other humans will bring about a deep peace that we call shalom. Often when we use the word peace, We think of the absence of conflict, but biblical peace is much deeper than that. The Bible Project created a short video to remind us that God's shalom is much greater than what we often consider to be peace. 
The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job, who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. We cannot seek peace on our own strength. In fact, as a Methodist church right now, we are not living with a sense of peace among ourselves Later this month, those of us who are members of the annual conference will be voting to release 13 churches from our Methodist connection because they no longer want to be part of the denomination because of the conflict over inclusion of LGBTQIA persons. 
There'll be more conferences next year where more churches will choose to leave. At some point in 2024, our general conference will meet and they will hopefully come to some resolution. But we have been talking about this conflict for decades upon decades. So we cannot seek peace on our own strength. Too often, we pass judgment instead. But as God has reconciled us through Christ, we are given this ministry of reconciliation. And this hard work is work we can do with God's help. In the end, every Sunday when we pass the peace, I think it is like a prayer, asking God to do something that we cannot do on our own strength, asking to give us peace so that we can share peace with others, knowing that this shalom is the gift of God in our midst. It is not something that we create on our own, but it is something that we can help to build. And I pray that every week as we pass the peace here, that our prayers for reconciliation and peace in this world will be answered so that we know shalom here and now. Amen. As we respond in prayer, let us bow down our heads and feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for gathering us today. Thank you for the scriptures that was read and the message of Pastor Sarah on reconciliation. We thank you for reminding us that we are bought by Jesus' death. We are not worthy of this, but because of your love, grace, and mercy, Jesus paid the price by dying on the cross for us. Thank you for the assurance that once we are in Christ, the old is past, everything is made new through him. We pray that as we go on our everyday lives, enable us to share the wonderful news that God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and for the everlasting peace, and that we can partake in that reconciliation simply by believing in him. I pray that many may come to trust in Jesus as saviors in the day that lie ahead. And as we are reconciled with God, let us pray together the prayer he taught Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.